BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 244. We have Dr. Jose Areta. He currently works as a lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences in Liverpool, John Moores University. I've been following his work for years now, and I wanted to have him on the podcast to discuss his latest paper. It's called Physical Performance During Energy Deficiency in Humans, an Evolutionary Perspective. On this week's podcast, we'll cover one of the most important questions in sports science. How does a calorie deficit affect athletic performance? But before we get into this week's podcast, a few announcements. We do have some new YouTube videos over on our YouTube channel. We've got our tech support series, episodes one and two. Episode three will drop this week as well. And if you want to be on the YouTube channel, you want me to review your form, send me a lifting video, media at barbellmedicine.com. And, uh, you know, if it's good, I'll put it on there. No, but in all seriousness... Please uh, film it landscape if you can, so that's long ways on the phone. Uh, have your whole body and the bar and everything else in uh, frame so I can see all of that. And you'd be surprised how many videos I get where it's just the person's lower torso or something like that. And uh, ladies too, got a lot of guys uh, submitting their lifting videos, but if you're a woman and you're lifting weights and you're uh, listening to this podcast and you want to form check, hey, send them over to media at barbellmedicine.com. Uh, we also have some new uh, video segments from our Los Angeles Super Seminar Q&A. So if you're interested in seeing as well as listening, check that, that out on the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. Uh, we have some new apparel over on the website. So if you're interested in repping Barbell Medicine in the gym, that's, uh, that's over there for you. And we do have some upcoming seminars. This weekend we'll be in Sacramento at the Untamed Ones Gym. That's uh, Alan Thrall, Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California. If you're in the area, you want to you be in the area, we'd love to have you at the seminar. I think we've got one or two spots left. So snag those while, you, while they're available. Uh, if you can be around this weekend. And then we'll be in Australia in January of 2024. We'll be in Sydney and Perth. And so if you're uh, down under or could be down under, we'll see you at the seminar, hopefully. And last but not least, if you guys have an interesting uh, question, an interesting claim that you think would be useful for our mailbag or quack watch segment that we're going to get into in some upcoming episodes, send them to mediabarbellmedicine.com. So this could be a health claim, fitness claim, something like that that you see and you're like, eh, that doesn't uh, pass the... Uh, sniff meter, send it over to the media barbellmedicine.com uh, email. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll include that. Okay. So announcements are out of the way. Let's get into this week's podcast with Dr. Areta. So first off, thank you so much for joining me on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Uh, before we hop into your recent publication, can you just give the audience some background on what exactly you do in sports science? I'm a lecturer in sports nutrition and Liverpool John Moores University. I suppose that uh, I've been doing a few things over the last 10 years in relation to research and applied practice in sports nutrition. Um, all my research has been around, you know, manipulating diet and seeing like physiological responses, you know, a lot of it looking at what happens in skeletal muscle and performance when you manipulate diet and so on. The last few years, um, it's been focused mainly on the effects of low energy availability in adaptation to, to training and performance as well. Yeah, I'm super excited to have Dr. Rita on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Again, I've read a number of your papers. And then when this latest paper came out, the physical performance during energy deficiency in humans and evolutionary perspective, right up my alley. Because I'm, I'm always wondering, like, what is a teleological argument or like, you know, place for this particular response we see? And then this paper was just chocked full of pearls. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, before we get into that, I also noticed, noticed you were 
uh, previously a national level endurance athlete. Are you still competing? Are you still what's your what's your history there? Yeah, I've, well, I've been I've been a competitive athlete all my life, really, since I've got like memory. You know, I'm a black belt in taekwondo, so I competed at a high level in taekwondo, and then I just did a move sort of to endurance sport, and uh, yeah, I did um, cycling at a, at a relatively high level, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm not competing anymore. Um, I, I kind of opted for a bit more balanced life, I suppose. Everything was like um, work and cycling at one point. And then I went like, oh, you know, it's nice to have a network of people around me that are friends and so on outside cycling. So now, now it's a little bit more balanced, but I still love it. So uh, yeah, pretty much involved in exercise very, very much. Yeah, that's been that's been my experience with people in sports science, particularly in the research. They have some sort of athletic background. Otherwise, it's really hard to, to maintain interest in the topic unless it like applies to you or people you work with or or something. So that's interesting. Uh, they, say, are, they say research is me search, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, people wonder why I'm so interested in uh, resistance training performance, and I'm like, well, yeah, just, yeah, that's it. <laughs> just trying to get better. Um, Okay, so let, let's get into this paper a little bit. Uh, and I think the way you started out the paper was was brilliant because you start talking about, well, if we're going to talk about energy deficiency, what is like how do we define that? You know, so do you have a, a working definition for energy deficiency? Because we're talking about human performance under periods of effectively uh, uh, eating at an energy deficit. But like, what does that actually mean? Well, I suppose that you know, people use different terms to um, describe what it is to maybe not be having enough energy and what, it, what is enough, right? And so you can be talking about like energy deficit and low energy availability and so on. And in that article, what I say, look, I use this term sort of interchangeably, assuming that we have an understanding that most people get that is not having enough energy to either maintain body mass or, you know, have, maintain no normal physiological function. Um, you know, the, the, the differences between um, energy deficit and low energy availability are quite nuanced and it takes some time to people to wrap their head around. It's just like, what, why are they different? Are they, are they the same? Basically, you know, the way we, we think about energy deficit is that, you know, you're not eating enough energy to either maintain your body weight or maintain your normal um, physiological function. So if you eat less you drop weight, you know, and something happens to your, your physiology. There's some sort of like physiological response to that. Um, the physiological response that most people would be familiar with is like getting hungry, right? That is a physiological response. Um, the thing is that, well, you can do that for a number of days, you know, your, your weight drops and so on, and you think you're in a negative energy deficit, and then you maintain that through time, and you'll see that your weight is going to, drop less and less and less. So this is sort of exponential decay in, you know, how your, your, your weight drops. And at one point you think you're in an energy deficit because you're eating a little compared to what you normally were eating. But, you know, after weeks or months, you see your weight doesn't drop anymore. And you go, oh, what's, what's going on here? I thought like I was in an energy deficit. And I think that's when it comes handy to understand the concept of low energy availability. So what happens, you know, when you started eating less and you say you maintain the same amount of energy intake, so this lower amount of energy intake through time, your body adapts to having less energy available. So there's a whole range of physiological sort of endocrine and physiological things that, that change that make you use less energy. So people become less active and there's less energy uh, expended at rest, both because your body mass has reduced and because, you know, your tissues seem to be like less metabolically active as well. So there's a whole set of, you know, behavioral and physiological adaptations that makes, it used to be um, energy deficit is not an energy deficit anymore, but you are basically in, in a new state of energy balance, but you have low energy availability, right? So before you started your weight loss or your energy deficit, you were in energy balance. Yeah, that is, let's say you are healthy, you are fine. That's a, like a healthy energy balance. Then you go into an energy deficit, maintain that through a period of like weeks, months, and so on. And then you have a new energy balance. So you're not in energy deficit anymore. Um, but there, that's because there's been a, some sort of like adaptation, which, you know, we, we tend to call that a metabolic adaptation. And you are in a, that new unhealthy 
potentially energy balance. Uh, but you've always been, since you started your, your weight loss, in low energy availability. So why is this useful then? Well, you might see that someone is not dropping weight and you say, like, oh, this, this person is energy balanced. They, they must be fine. You know, they are not in energy deficit, but they might actually be potentially in low energy availability. And this is where, you know, the concept of low energy availability needs to be defined, which is, you know, the energy available acts after um, subtracting the energy uh, expenditure from exercise available, so the energy available for maintenance or normal physiological function. Yeah. No, I, and I think for people, this is this is very useful because you hear these stories, particularly, I mean, my, our world is is mostly resistance training, so powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, CrossFit, things like that. And um, particularly in the bodybuilding world, people will get very, very lean for a show, right? Uh, and so they've been in an energy deficiency technically as, they, as long as they've been losing weight. And then after the show, um, some people, they try to maintain that, uh, for example, and they find that they have to eat very, very low amount of calories to do so and exercise a lot to maintain that. And uh, they're like, why, well, why is this? And it, it, it's effectively they've established this new energy balance at a very low dietary intake of, of calories. Uh, and they feel particularly bad. And it's like you may – just because you're not losing weight anymore, you may actually have low energy availability and your hormonal and other physiological functions are compromised just due to low – energy and you have low body fat. So there might be some element of the relative energy deficiency syndrome, which is like caused by this low energy availability that you have if it persists. And so I, do, I just don't want people at home to listen to this and say, yeah, you know, one time I, I was trying to lose weight and then I stopped losing weight and I might just have had low energy availability. It's like, well, that's possible, but un, not probable unless you were relatively lean, getting, you know, pretty lean, very, very active. It's, it's generally not happening to folks who are, you know, previously individuals with overweight or obesity, and then they, you know, lose 5% body weight. And they're like, oh, I have low energy availability now because I stopped losing weight. It's like, that's, that's probably not what's going on. Well, I mean, you actually are effectively in low energy availability, even if you don't eat enough one day. That, that, that's, that is the thing. So uh, the thing is that what are the negative consequences of that? You know, it might take quite a long time until you start to see that if there are any negative consequences, you know, and, and I think this is uh, kind of what you're pointing towards this idea of like black and white thinking like, oh, I didn't eat enough one day, then that's going to, you know, hurt my performance and that's going to have a negative effect on my bones, my reproductive function and so on, which are, you know, potentially effects of um, not eating enough energy for, for a long, long period of time. But the body is actually quite quick to respond um, hormonally to not eating enough you know you see for example if you don't eat enough um energy for about a day your your, your leptin is going to drop through the floor that's you know leptin is very very sensitive and that, that that responds very very quick whereas some other hormones might try might take you know quite a few days or or, or weeks i don't know um, for example estrogen in in in, in women you know that the change in, in estrogen would take probably um bit longer for, for you to, to see it. Other things like, I don't know, luthinacin hormone re responds quite quick, the, the pulsatility in particular. Um, but um, some some hormones take a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, we do get this sort of question all the time about when people ask, oh, why did my, my training session go poorly today? I, I, maybe I didn't eat enough. It's like, over one day, probably a minimal concern, but you know, as it stretches out longer and longer, the duration becomes longer, or the magnitude of energy avail like deficiency becomes longer, and then subsequently, yeah, all bets are off at that point. But I think when you started off the conversation in the paper about all right, what is it, and what are the important parameters for like characterizing energy deficiency, I think it, I thought it was brilliant. Just you know, what's the deficiency? How long has it been going on for? And like, what's the context? Which unfortunately, our current definitions don't. There's no real like way to rate or characterize these things in clinical practice that's accepted. So we're all just kind of like, yeah, it's energy deficiency. And then you have to further describe it on your own, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I suppose it's, it's complex also because there's inter-individual variation, you know, and you cannot say, oh, there is this number and everyone is going to respond the same to this stimulus. So you have to think, I think one, one of the things that I, I try people to think about is energy deficit as a stressor. You know, as any stressor, you know, some people respond to it 
better than others and in, di in different ways. You know, some people respond better to training. You know, they do like a couple of training sessions and they get fitter. And then some, someone else might need like twice the amount of training to get the same response in terms of like in increasing their fitness. So if we think, you know, that our body responds to a number of stressors that we put in our body, energy deficit being one of them, how much you put uh, into it and how, how your body responds might, might be... Um, you know, uh, very much depending on your own physiology as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Uh, it's, a, it's a perfect segue into this, this next question I have for you. Um, in the paper, you make multiple arguments that reductions in performance during periods of effectively energy deficiency or food scarcity uh, in the evolutionary perspective would be deleterious for like our survival as a species. Um, can you take our audience through your line of reasoning, how you kind of get from like, all right, if historically we needed to be able to perform under situations of food scarcity and thus energy deficiency. Like how do you translate that into modern day, maybe performance prediction, you know, during energy deficiency? Yeah. So, um, you know, the background to this uh, is based on, on observations and also on, on, on evidence that people that go into an energy deficit are still able to perform at a very high level. And, you know, in many sports, they actually make weight to compete and then com compete in, in, in whatever um, competition and they, they win with like very low levels of body mass and so on. Um, and there's typically this thinking in uh, the area of sports nutrition, you know, that very black and white thinking now that that, 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 that line is blurring a little bit, you know, it's, it's been, there's more shades of gray now, likely in the interpretation of this, but it's still, you know, quite predominant the idea that as as early as you go into some sort of energy deficit, then your the performance is gonna is gonna be impaired. And you know, I, I I start thinking about this, and I start thinking about well, actually, you know, most animals. My background, I'm, I'm a biologist. Actually, my degree, my first degree is in zoology, um, so I tend to think things from a maybe a different viewpoint. Um, and try to, you know, incorporate more things related to evolution and so on. And I'm like, well, you know, when you think about evo uh, evolutionary pressures, you know, energy is, is, is very, very important. And uh, most uh, animals have developed ways in which they can sort of optimize their functioning, even when there's no food available all the time, which, you know, it's, it's a rarity in a... <laughs> from an evolutionary perspective to have the amount of food available that we have these days in like supermarkets and anywhere you go really. Um, and I'm, and you know, I keep thinking about this and I keep reading and I'm like, but you know, hang on, actually, um, we, we see that, you know, people who are competing at a very high level in, in endurance sports, they are like very much in energy deficiency and, and doing incredibly. And you go like, how, how does this make sense? Like you see all of these, um, endocrine response is changing so quick to energy deficit. Like as I was telling you, like, I don't know, leptin, you know, where you look at um, T3 and, and so on, you know, IGF-1, hormones that are very, very sensitive to um, energy deficiency, they change so quick and it's telling you, oh, your body's trying to preserve energy. But then you see them perform and they are like winning the hardest races out there. And this is, how can this make sense? And, well, and I go like, you know, from if if you think about our um, evolutionary heritage, you know, and where where our our bodies have adapted basically as to to be for us to be hunter gatherers, um, and in that context, you need to move to be able to chase food. You need to be you, you need to be able to move to gather food, and so the, the, my idea is that if if there's a hierarchy of allocation of of energy to the things that are most important to ensure um, fitness. And fitness, I mean, like uh, evolutionary fitness, basically staying alive. So that must be basically being able to move for A, you know, chase or gather, or B, uh, just run away from something that will kill you. <laughs> so um, from in, in, in this perspective, I think that, if you know there is a down regulation of whatever physiological systems um, might be down regulated, then to me it would make more sense that these are the things that are last down regulated. So the things that are most important to keep functioning are cognitive capacity and uh, locomotion. 
but things that are not immediately essential for survival, then they, these are down-regulated. So, for example, things that we see that get affected quite early on uh, when there's energy deficit uh, is things related to reproductive function, So, which doesn't seem to be immediately important for survival, and also is protective, um, particularly for the case of females, uh, because having a baby is very expensive energetically. So it's probably uh, protective both for the, you know, for 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 the mother and you know the 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 um, and the baby, you know, not not being pregnant in the, in, a, in a period of uh, energy deficiency. So instead of being something bad, um, losing the, the the menstrual cycle, well, it can be th- thought of something bad because it's a red flag that there's not enough energy. It might actually be protective, and so not bad if you think that you want to stay alive as a hunter gatherer. Yeah, it's like it's a feature, not a bug, in a way, like at, from an adaptation standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, of course, the context that we live in today is is very different from that of, of a hunter gatherer. So we have to think about how we interpret these these signals. But I think it's important to understand where, where they are coming from to understand how we interpret what's what's happening. Yeah, uh, one of the things you you referenced uh, both in your previous answer and then in the in the text is that yeah, endurance athletes in particular during periods of observable energy deficiency, they've either they're losing weight or have lost weight, they're able to perform at a you know high high if not a relatively high level, like almost the highest level. You see it in the Tour de France, which they call a eating contest on wheels. The people and the athletes in general lose weight throughout the you know duration of the the race, even though they're trying to eat their faces off, but they're sort of limited by how much food they can actually take in and, and not get, you know, upset tummies while they're, while they're cycling. Um, if you were going to, you know, try to strongly support your, your, this idea here, uh, with, uh, evidence in athletes, uh, where, where do you, where do you go for that? Like, where do you start that sort of conversation? Maybe, you know, does it start in endurance sports where you're like, all right, we have this robust data where people are losing weight or energy deficiency perform at high level. And then do we have examples of that in like strength power sports where, where that sort of thing is preserved? Cause I, I know there's, and you talk about this in the paper as well. I know there's this sort of difference between yet, yeah, can they perform or can they perform at the highest level? There's like a difference, right? But if you were trying to support this sort of, okay, I have this idea that evolutionarily speaking, we need to be able to preserve performance in order to maintain our fitness, ability to like survive and reproduce. How does, again, how do you translate that to athletic performance? Um, I think it's important to clarify that I'm not advocating to say that losing weight is necessarily a good thing because this can be interpreted in, in, in many ways. This can, you know, perpetuate this idea that, oh, you need to be light all the time or you need, you need, you need to be losing weight to have better power to weight ratio and then you're fine. You know, this is, first of all, this is not, this is not what I'm saying. Um, and I'm not saying that you're saying, I'm saying that this, but uh, I, um, I think it's important to clarify, you know, weight loss has to be approached with a, with a lot of care because of the psychological stress that is, you know, associated with it, the potential physiological effects and, and, and so on. So, um, that, that is the first thing that, that, that I would, that, that I would like to say. Having said that, I think that, um, we don't yet have a lot of data there's not solid data in, incredibly because it's such a popular topic like pretty much anyone that i talk to that knows i work in sports nutrition the first question that they ask me is like oh what do i need to eat and and i know that implied like uh, um, um, implicitly they are asking me how do i lose weight uh, pretty much is on the mind of most people that they are not, you know, they are not at the right weight and they need to lose weight. And that is even before I tell them that actually what I work on is like in energy deficit. So it's, it, what I'm saying here is surprising that given that it's such a popular topic and interest of so many people, we don't really have a lot of data looking at performance changes with controlled weight loss. But there are enough data there to, to suggest that at least for a relatively short period of time, you can improve performance in endurance sports and in um, uh, in, in, in weight in weightlifting type, type sort of so strength. 
when it comes to elite sport, there, there is very little data. So I cannot say like, oh yeah, look, um, if, if you do, are doing like Olympic weightlifting and you need to get in, in this in this weight class, I can guarantee that it's going to have no effect on your performance. You're already performing at a national or international level. Um, I cannot, I, I, I have no evidence to, to, to say that. What I have evidence to say is like, there is, there is a, a, a degree of energy deficit with which many people seem to be able to cope with without having negative effects. Um, and we can also say that there's people with clear signals of energy deficit, which still perform at a very high level. Whether they would perform at a better level had their energy been restored, that I, we don't have the evidence to say that that is the case. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty that's kind of where I fall right now is that and and in addition, there's this huge inter-individual variation in just response to, as you mentioned, the stress, yes. as you want to call it, of energy deficiency. Yeah. I also I also am curious, particularly because a, a number of the data on energy deficiency, or we'll just maybe better said is weight loss prior to a competitive, you know, match or event uh, for weight class sports. You, you there's an ability to there's an ability to conflate the sort of weight loss maybe attributed to energy deficiency before uh, the competition versus dehydration, you know, because it, which we know can have a market effect on, on performance. And so there's, there's not only the, okay, energy availability, uh, the hydration status, uh, but then also, uh, again, just sort of how long were they in this deficiency for and, 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 you know, their inter-individual response to the stress. And so there's a lot of variables there, yeah. but, one one thing I haven't seen, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, I haven't seen a lot of uh, uh, good data where it's like, yep, this person was in a relatively modest energy deficit. They lost a little bit of weight, so demonstrably in a deficit for some period of sustained time, and uh, their performance just tanked. A or this group of people, they did that and reliably their performance tanked. I haven't, I haven't seen that, which makes me feel a little more confident in kind of your position that – it's probably well tolerated by most people as long as the de deficit isn't too big or too long or too stressful, which is, I feel like, a reasonable position to take, you know, rather than energy deficit period is bad for performance. And it's like, eh, I think that's too reduction. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think what we need to avoid is sort of, you know, this black and white thinking. And I've got two things to say here. Um, one of them is that you cannot really think about energy deficit independent from what that energy is composed of. Sure. Um, so depending on what sport you're thinking about, you know, macronutrient content, different type of macronutrients might have a different effect on the outcome of, of the performance on those particular individuals. Um, I'm thinking here, you know, more specifically, which you, on, on, for, for um, endurance sport, whereby not eating enough carbohydrates very quick is going to have a negative effect on how you perform. So the, 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 there is this thing of what I call like maybe like localized and systemic energy deficit. This is not a, um, something that terminology that I think has been wide, widely used and maybe made that up myself, but I think kind of explains a little bit of, of what's, what's going on. What I talk about localized energy deficit is thinking about localizing the muscle you know you have this energy deficit of not having enough muscle glycogen which is a very important fuel source for high intensity exercise um but then you might be with um systemic energy surplus you know you've e eaten enough energy from fat from protein whatever to maintain you know your your, your energy balance and then you know you you, you don't perform well just because you don't have enough muscle glycogen. Uh, but typically what happens if you're in energy, you know, low energy availability, energy deficit, you, you name it, whatever you want to call it, uh, you would typically also be in a, in a state of having relative low carbohydrate availability. Yeah. And so your performance is going to suffer quite um, quite early on in that this sort of intervention can be within, within a day. Or, or, or less, uh, just because you don't have enough uh, muscle glycogen. It's, and it has nothing to do with the sort of systemic energy deficit response of what your hormones are doing because it's not enough time um, to, to have that sort of negative effect.
Yeah, I, I think that's what, I think that's what Dr. Burke showed with the race walking studies. That the people in the race, the race walkers, didn't lose any weight during the intervention. One group was like low carb keto, almost. I, I think, although I don't know that they actually verified that they were in active ketosis. So the low carb bros would be like, "We can't. It's not keto yet." But anyway. One group was low, you know, very low carb, and the other group ate a higher carbohydrate diet. But none of them lost weight, so they were in a, as you would say now, systemically not in an energy sort of deficit, but maybe localized energy deficiency due to low carbohydrate availability. And then the the, the race walkers on, on a low carbohydrate diet had higher RPEs for their efforts. They were going slower, and ultimately had a performance decrease. And it's like, huh, yeah, there's something to that. What is the fueling source? Uh, yeah. in, as you mentioned, particularly in endurance sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, there are, um, you know, there's a series of these studies by Louise, um, they have, um, these, you know, supernova studies, which are, which are great. They're like a, the, the, the work that they're doing, they're fantastic. Um, there is a, a, a recent one also published in um, Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise where they look at the effect of uh, low energy, particularly in, in performance, in, in race, race walkers. And um, it's a bit, you know, confusing in that study, the fact that the energy balance group, they also lost weight. Um, and uh, so they, they were not really in energy balance. They were uh, for a- adequate energy availability, availability but they, they lost a little bit of weight, about a kilo or so in that study. Um, and the one, you know, the group that lost more weight, um, they, you know, they just didn't have a, 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 an impairment in performance, um, at least for a period of whatever it was, like three weeks or something like that, two or three weeks. Um, interestingly, you know, that I don't think uh, race walking weight is a, or like at least that level of weight would make a massive difference because of the biomechanics of the sports, which is different from running. It would be interesting to see that same thing done in, ru- in running um, or like some sort of sport where you have to go up, like cycling or something like that. But um, yeah, no, it is it's just really interesting. So that was one one of my points, like, you know, the availability. If you have the muscle glycogen, um, if you have this sort of high uh, uh, localized energy, would that be enough to perform well, even when you have maybe a systemic low energy? So basically you um lose weight for a period of time you know then you uh, have your uh, nutrition right you get your amount of carbohydrates that you need for competition and then you compete um you know that what what happens then uh, i don't i don't i don't think that would have a negative effect on performance the other thing that i think is important to consider and this is point number two is that um Nothing might happen, you know, when you maintain an energy deficit for a, for a prolonged period of time uh, until you get to what I call a breaking point. Yeah. So it's this sort of stress that adds up and but breaking point. There's no, no pun intended here, but could be represented by, you know, a stress fracture. You know, you break a bone, basically, which there's quite strong data showing a relationship between um energy deficit and changes in markers of bone metabolism. Whether there's a direct effect on energy deficit on having a, a stress fracture that, you know, I, I know that a lot of people are gonna hate me for saying this because there's quite, there's quite strong evidence to support that, but that the direct effect has not been shown yet. Um, and I'm being very picky here in like terms of how we interpret the science because that's what we need to do to make sure that when we find like causality between two things, we cannot just say that two th- that something is the cause of something else if there's no enough evidence to prove that. Uh, but, you know, if we assume that, uh, in fact, energy deficit can lead to, um, you know, broken bones because of the way of making the bone weaker and weaker and weaker, um, then it might be that everything is fine for, for a period of like weeks, months, years, and so on until you get to that breaking point and then things go south big time. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's probably some inflection point where like risk of, uh, clinical outcomes associated with low energy availability, which you, some of them might fall under reds, you know, or be seen in reds. There's probably, okay, the risk is increased now. And then you get, go on a little bit further. And then that's when the breaking point, you know, occurs, like something actually happens to, you know, so the point, the point would be like, can we identify this earlier? Right. Like if we're really trying to avoid any of the developing one of these these bad outcomes. And so when you're thinking about this, uh, maybe from like a 
you know, a sports performance standpoint, is there like a, an algorithm that you're doing some mental calculus where you're like, okay, here's how long they've been in an energy deficit based on their weight trajectory. Here's what their diet looks like composition wise. Here's the content. Like, do you, is there any sort of system you think about this through? Um, I, I think it's, I think it's complicated and I think I'm starting to move away a little bit more of having this sort of energy centric model of what's going on with whomever person, because uh, you have to think more about the integration of a lot of different stresses, you know, energy is, is one of them. Um, so I think you, these things need to be considered in, in, in that, in that context. Uh, first of all, we don't really know, as I was saying before, the inter-individual variation, uh, in response to an energy deficit and also you know when you have someone that is not performing for whatever reason it's not just the energy it's a lot of things that are going on so i think that it's important to keep in mind sort of an you know have an op- open mind of all the things that might be affecting someone not just the energy so the thing is that when you change the energy and you know i'm sure you've you've um, have you ever competed in some sort of like what, what have you done in terms of that? Okay. So I've been competing in powerlifting for the last, I don't know, almost 15 years. And then I race yeah. motorcycles. So right. one of them is more like endurance focused. The other one yeah. is obviously strength power focused. But yeah. So yeah, but, is it not, not, uh, but it's not, there's, this is, these are not sports where you have to um, sort of, there's, there's not aesthetic component to it. Powerlifting is a weight class sport, right? Yeah. So I have to be in the 90 kilo or 93 kilo class. And so yeah. if I go too far above that, I mean, no one's judging me by how I look, obviously, yeah. but I, I do have to make weight for the class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's always better to look good in the photos, right? You would prefer to look better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, well, my point here was that if, um, because sports that have this, you know, very strong component of all you have to um, withdraw from eating energy and so on, that, that that's on itself. Uh, the fact that you are isolating yourself from others, that is a stressor as well. You know, it's not, it's not just, my point is, it's not just the energy, right? There's a lot of things that stress you out. And we know from, you know, many years ago that stress has a very strong modulatory effect on, you know, se- se- different um, axis of your, you know, hypothalamic pituitary axis. Um, so you cannot not consider these things when you're thinking about, well, the effect of energy, because there's a lot of other things that are changing. So if you're telling someone not to eat and they stop eating with their family, um, and they, you know, stop eating the foods they like and, and so on, how can you think that this is not a factor that is affecting them? Sure. Some social, like psychosocial type impact on, on the, yeah your experience of yeah. this energy deficit or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that maybe the question that you were asking for here was hoping that I say like, oh yeah, you measure T3 here and you see T3 has gone down by this many nanomoles and therefore that's the sweet spot where you're going to get your best performance and so on. Unfortunately, I don't have that answer. Maybe something like that happens. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the answer for that. What I advocate is maybe for a more integrative uh, viewpoint of all the things that are affecting an individual. No, that, that, well, the, the answer was absolutely perfect because, it, I mean, again, if you support my bias, I, I, I tend to latch onto this. But, but this is something that we talk about with people all the time is, you know, again, there's this concern over like micromanaging nutrition in a way to optimize performance and look, reducing down performance just to what is my nutrition status at this particular point or acutely. And we're like, look, man, performance has a wide range of variables that all get integrated together. And then the output is, you know, whatever, whatever the performance is. And so I would not reduce somebody's performance potential down to what is their acute nutritional status on a particular day or series of days outside of like acute illness, perhaps is going to have a stronger impact, you know, uh, certain malnutrition things are going to have uh, more impact, but still, even then, it's still one of just many variables that gets sort of, again, integrated together. And you have to, rather than looking for just one smoking gun, you're looking for, all right, what are all the levers that are, that I can potentially pull here to help somebody out? If that's your, if that's your role. But so I thought your answer was perfect to be clear. If you, if you did come up with an algorithm, you're like this, 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 I'd be like, I read a different paper. I think the guy who wrote the paper is a different person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's me. It's me. I, I, uh, I spent a, a lot of uh, sweat, sweat, blood, and tears thinking about. No, not tears, but uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's I'm the same person who wrote that that paper. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. As you're saying, it's it's like riding a bike. It's a it's a it's a balance trick. 
This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Okay, well, since we are lifter in general, our audience big into resistance training, muscle mass, strength, power, all that sort of stuff. I, I do have to ask you some questions pertaining to your paper, and you feel free to speculate and make caveats uh, appropriately. So I feel like that's you would do that anyway. So the big question people want to know is, can you gain muscle in an energy deficit? And it doesn't seem to matter how many papers I show people are like, look, this untrained individual, these, this group of people are trained individual. It looks like their lean body mass increases, even though they've lost body mass, which is indicative of an energy deficit. I, people want to know from the expert and you're the expert. So very curious what your take on this is. Well, um, yeah, it's, um, it's quite complex. You know, we, um, you can definitely get stronger while you lose weight both from non-muscle mass and muscle mass first of all so um i'm a person who likes to think function first and then you know looks second i think yeah a lot of people want to grow muscles and get leaner you know get ripped as they call it and so on um and you can definitely do that you know it depends uh, how you know how severe your energy deficit is and it seems that, you know, two things are important for that. And I'm sure you've said this many, many times, but maybe this is going to, for the folks listening out there, we haven't had a chat before this. So I'm, what I'm saying is coming from me. It's not that he told me to <laughs> say didn't tell him to say it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, lifting weights and eating protein definitely both help in maintaining muscle protein synthesis and increasing protein synthesis. So I'm going to um, 
talk about a study we run as part of my PhD, actually, quite a few years ago now. It's uh, published in the American Journal of uh, Physiology, Endocrinology, and Metabolism. What we did was look at uh, what happens with muscle protein synthesis when you go into an energy deficit. So this study, you know, was a short energy deficit, so about five days, but that was enough, we thought, to look at the what happens with muscle protein synthesis. What we knew before that is like uh, lean mass is decreased when you go into an energy deficit. But lean mass is composed of many things, you know, your organs, you know, and, and you know, water can be lean mass and then your muscle, which is, you know, a very important component of the lean mass. But here what we did was a direct assessment of muscle protein synthesis. So we brought people in the lab. We, we basically put them in an energy deficit for five days, gave them all the foods and so on. <clears throat> and then using a stable... Uh, so, um, I, uh, amino acids labeled with stable isotopes. We got them in the lab and look at what happened in their energy, in their muscle protein synthesis at rest, um, both in a state of energy balance and a state of energy deficit. What we saw is like, well, if you go into an energy deficit, your muscle protein synthesis is going to go down. So your, your body, you know, one of the things that takes energy off, you know, when you're in an energy deficit is growth. So growth doesn't seem to be that important in terms of like priorities of where your, your muscle allocates energy. The thing is that if you give a stimulus to the muscle, so i.e. you know resistance type training, uh, your muscle protein synthesis goes back to what you had at the level of uh, rest in energy balance. Yeah, so the, the exercise stimulus seems to rescue the muscle, the decay in muscle protein synthesis. So what happens here, you're going to maintain your muscle mass, you know, assuming that, you know, this is repeated through time and so on. You would maintain your muscle mass while other parts of your body are uh, being reduced. For example, fat mass. So you are not going to lose as much energy from muscle. You're going to lose energy from, from, uh, from, from fat. Um, and then if you intake protein, you further increase the amount of muscle protein synthesis. So you have to think about protein intake, you know, the amino acids that go into your bloodstream as further stimulus for your muscle. So the way that I think it is, well, nutrition in this case is a physiological trigger for your muscles to grow. So this um, wave-like pattern of the amino acids going up and down on your bloodstream seems to be important to trigger the increase in muscle protein synthesis. So um, there's, you know, a number of studies that show that when you are in an uh, um, energy deficit, it's harder to grow muscle, but you still can. Uh, there is a nice meta-analysis done recently by uh, Karsten Köhler uh, from Technical University of Munich and his student, um, I can remember his first name, his surname is Murphy, uh, looking at the relationship between energy deficit, uh, lean mass loss and strength uh, changes, you know, in people who train for over, over a period of time. And it's a very nice meta-analysis because basically what they show there, I think it was up until 500 kilocalories per day, um, you know, the increase in body in, in lean mass was not impaired that much, if I remember correctly. If more than that, the, there's an impairment in increase in lean mass, but people keep getting stronger. So as you probably know very well, uh, strength is determined by you know a number of factors, not just the size of the muscle. So you have to think about intramuscular coordination, you know, the quality of the muscle, the shape of the fascicles and so on. There's a lot of things that affect strength. So um, you can still get stronger while you're losing weight. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, it is funny when people ask, hey, can I gain muscle while I'm in an energy deficit? I'm like, is that the real question you're trying to ask? Or have you like already jumped three steps ahead where you're like, if I can't gain muscle, then I can't gain strength. And so ipso facto, I can't be in a deficit because I want to get stronger. And it, it looks like, I just think there's that assumption that muscle cross-sectional area, muscle size is, has this direct correlation to muscular strength over a longitudinal, like a long period of time. Whereas I, I think the best data we have right now shows that in a cross-section, like a, you know, snapshot in time, sure. If you wanted to predict how strong people were and you knew nothing else about them, 
the amount of lean body mass that they're carrying is a you know reasonable proxy for that. That's going to be the best you can do pretty much. But over time, some people are going to gain a lot more muscle mass, some people not as much, but their strength levels don't necessarily follow that pattern because as yeah. I mentioned, so many things go into strength performance. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, and if you're thinking about complex movements like Olympic weightlifting and so on, it's, you know, you need to be incredibly fast and coordinated. Um, it's not just about the cross-sectional area. There's a lot more going on. I know. I kind of wish it was. I think I'd yeah. be a better lifter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you do, like you said, you have to look good for the picture. So, so yeah, exactly. Fine. Yeah. Uh, I wish we had more time. I do want to ask a few, just a few more questions for our listenership. One thing we try to ask, especially with the very, very, uh, respected, uh, researchers that come on our, our podcast, what, if you have any like books that you like for people to read now, people, cause people ask us all the time, like, Oh, what book should I read? And we, I'm like, about what? And I don't want to recommend textbooks, but I'm very curious as someone like yourself, you're in this space, you're doing a lot of research. What, uh, do you have any like of your favorite books that you would recommend to people to oh, read? I love reading. I don't know, like in this topic or anything, like I can, I can, you know, you, you, you get me started talking about books and I can just go for hours. Like I'll, I'll narrow, I'll narrow it up for you. Your, your favorite, your favorite, uh, maybe either like sports science or nutrition book that you just feel like, Hey, if you're interested in these topics, read this. And then maybe just a, a pet favorite book. It doesn't have to be on any particular topic. Just something that you think is, is very good. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so hard, you know. <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a difficult question to to answer. Um, you know, one of my favorite books in uh, exercise physiology uh, is the Astron and Rodel uh, books from the sixties. So this is, I mean, it's 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 not something that you would read to be up to date with anything. Um, it, but it's the uh, it's the book that basically gives you a very good idea of what the research in this area was like when it started, because it's the the the, the fingerprint of the research of the Scandinavians is just absolutely fantastic, you know, of like because the, the main research on on exercise physiology and nutrition and so on started in in, in Scandinavia, like Sweden and and Denmark and and so on. So you know uh, guys like Astran and 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 Rodel and like you know Ben Saltine and all the all the schools of like research that came from there. That's kind of I think where m most of this work started. So I think that is a really fascinating book to to look into. It's just like traveling back in time, but I I love it. What's the What's the title of that book? Do you Do you recall? So it's the textbook of work physiology. Oh, um, that's excellent. Yeah, Pearl Olaf. Ostrand and uh, Kari Rodan. Um, yeah, that's a yeah. It's, it's a very old book, so yeah. As I'm saying, you wouldn't read that to, to stay up to date. And then, um, if you're in, interested in energy deficit, uh, you should definitely take a look at the um, Minnesota Salvation Experiment, uh, which is uh, from also is it all even older? Um, that's from you know uh, from the Second World War after the Second World War. Yeah, um, but that, Ansel that, Keys and, and everybody else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that 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 those those are great. You know, it's just they have so much data, and you just, I keep look, going back at it and, and reading it. And yeah, and you know, um, the rest of the the information that I I take for um, myself uh, these days all scientific papers. So make PubMed your your best friend, sort of thing, and to follow the people who are good at you know doing the the research that they that they do and get uh, alerts and and so on yeah i really like that suggestion though of like maybe some of these historical texts not i mean they're not hist history so to speak they are older but to give people a sort of appreciation of all right here's where we started and like a general view of the landscape because i think people if they don't have formalized training in in the field they and they jump straight to pubmed for example and they're reading papers like one hats off to you because reading papers without a big fund of scientific knowledge, that's just tough. And I, yeah, I applaud you. But the, without that sort of background, it's really difficult to kind of figure out, like, why are they studying this in the first place? And, like, what do we know maybe about this topic? Or what are some of our assumptions? And I think having some of those classic works, the Minnesota Starvation Experiment in Nutrition, for example, or, or the that, you know, work in physiology textbook, it just gives you a, a better 
appreciation and I think better understanding of like, well, what is this paper actually saying or trying to show, uh, for example. So, um, yeah, yeah. interesting. It was an interesting set of suggestions, but I am appreciative because I, 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 I work on the same wavelength here. Great. Um, I know that you had a new paper that came out, uh, that you worked on with, uh, I believe Dolan and Ponzer and, and every, and, and those folks. And maybe we'll get to, to interview the, the lead author on that, uh, soon, but what are you working on now? Any cool research projects coming down the pike? Yeah, we have a lot of re cool research, um, things going on. Um, so we've, we've been working for, for a while on this study that, you know, we're, uh, working on the manuscript at the moment. Uh, looking at the effect, I think I mentioned in the study that or that 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 lead review that you know you were asking me about before, uh, looking at what happens specifically in skeletal muscle when you put it in an energy deficit but keep exercising. Yeah, so we're looking, we're using, uh, we have the luxury of having one of the world experts here in skeletal muscle proteomics uh, in our department, and Professor Jotin Berniston, and we're working with with him on this. Um, basically, what we're looking at is a very detailed uh, analysis of changes of expression in skeletal muscle. And this is like looking at changes in rate of protein synthesis, not in the, in the, in the average in the muscle, which has what's been typically done, but this is like protein by protein. We have like hundreds of proteins that we can see the changes in, in expression. So we're basically looking what happens when you put the stimulus or stress or insult, whatever you want to call it, of energy deficit uh, on how the body changes its phenotype. Yeah. Uh, our hypothesis being in line with the work that, you know, that, that you, we were talking about today is that muscle, instead of being completely like downregulated, if you keep contracting it, you keep using it when you're in energy deficit, the muscle is going to shift to be able to use more energy because that's possibly uh, something that can uh, help with survival when there's not enough energy. So instead of saying like, well, everything else is shut down, the hypothesis is that, you know, the muscle really changes its phenotype to be able to generate more energy. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that does jibe with it. I know there's some papers uh, on um, muscle mass uh, and training like during weight periods of weight loss, and they talk about like muscle economy and, and sort of, yeah. If you exercise during weight loss, for example, your resting metabolic rate or your total daily energy expenditure may not decrease as much as you would expect because some of this muscle economy that would otherwise happen has been attenuated. So that'd be I'll be curious to see how this. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's there's a, there's a change in um, there's studies that have shown that there's a change in in, in myosin heavy chain uh, for a type of um, you know changing the muscle to something that is a bit more potentially more efficient. Well, if you tell me that there's more you know, heavy chain two, fast twitch stuff, and I just got to lose a little bit of weight. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. Your game, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of the studies we're also looking at the independent effect of energy and and carbohydrate availability. Uh, we're quite excited about that. And then we have uh, yeah some really interesting work that we're doing that is more more theoretical uh, in relation to how we you know if we should be thinking about solely the stress of energy in you know in the body or we sh we have to start contemplating a lot of other stresses that you know might trigger responses that are very similar to what you see with energy deficit yeah no i love it i'll be i'll just yeah, bookmark your name on on pubmed and when there's a new paper no that'll i'm looking forward to it um so you're on twitter are you on any of the other social media platforms where can people connect with you Oh, luckily not. Uh, just like, uh, <laughs> smart, smart. Yeah, you know, it's just like attention is uh, such a pre precious asset, and I think that I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm, yeah, quite, you know, behind in what I want to be and not getting distracted during the day and having more social media. It just wouldn't do any favor to that. So just Twitter, and each time I look at it less and less. But I still tweet, so you might find me there every now and then tweeting stuff related to this topic yeah well, we'll link that in the uh, show notes below along with the paper that we discussed uh, today but uh, special thanks to dr areta for uh, joining us here on the barbell medicine podcast thank you for your time thank you so much it. for having me
All right, that's a wrap on episode 244. Uh, shout out to Dr. Rita for joining me on the podcast. Really great uh, interview. Really appreciate his time. Uh, he's busy doing research and a bunch of other stuff, obviously. So I'm glad that it all worked out. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Also, share it with your friends. It's a really great way to help out the channel, and we do appreciate it. We will catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.